0: Welcome to Wholesale Change, the webcast and podcast from Distribution Strategy Group, where we provide thought leadership for wholesale change agents like you. My name's Ian Heller. I'll be your co-host today, along with my glamorous business partner, the doctor of distribution, Jonathan Byan, PhD. How are you doing this morning, Jonathan? Well, Ian, how are you? Thanks for the
1: superlatives.
0: <laughs> well, today you're just the doctor of distribution. You know, I forgot to think of something special. So you
1: added it, you added it in glamour, which is a new one.
0: That's true. It. Glamorous is it's usually yeah. something around you know quantitative genius or you know the emperor of exile. Today it was glamorous. So
1: yeah, well, I mean that that is kind of glamorous in this new world that we live in. So
0: yeah, well, and and for those of you who are on the webcast versus the podcast, uh, Jonathan and I are both wearing plaid today, so it's a plaid day out here in Colorado. And given the snow and cold, that seems appropriate, doesn't it? Yeah, don't get plaid. Get even. <laughs> uh, that was hilarious. Anyway, so um, uh, <laughs> so today we're going to talk about the quarterly results uh, for four different distribution companies. We'll make some comments, and then we have a topic to haggle over, argue about as is our want. Uh, but the companies we're going to talk about today are Granger, Fasenall, MSC. And a little bit about motion industries, you know, motions embedded inside a much bigger company called Genuine Parts. So there's not as much data about them, but there's enough in there for us to make some observations. So uh, let's uh, let's jump in. You ready, Jonathan? You ready to do this? Let's go. Let's go. All right. Good. So, Grangers, these are some highlights. So, their third quarter sales were $3 billion, uh, apparently on the nose or close to it, which is 2.4% over third quarter of 2019. So, I mean, it looks like they're recovering, right, wouldn't you say? For sure,
1: yes. I mean, they, they, had, a, they had a dip uh, along with many other companies, and um, have managed through it pretty well.
0: Yeah, their operating margins were up 1.1%. Gross margins were down a lot. What is that's what uh, 170 basis points I'm seeing there from Yes, 37.3 to 35.6. Mm-hmm. Um so that pushed their stock down a little bit. It was like 5.6% down in a week, but it's still up 13.3% in a year and 27% in 6 months. So they gave some back um and You know, but clearly analysts did have a pretty negative reaction to this margin degradation. What's your view on that, Jonathan? Um, I I guess it's all relative.
1: Um, You know, they're still trading at a at a healthy total total market cap of around eighteen billion. Um, Nineteen. So, oh, is it nineteen? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I said I said around. (laughs) Sorry. Okay. Um, so they're trading, they're trading at 19 billion. So um, apparently, that effect has not been that large, given that they're still trading at that high a market cap.
0: So I guess I, you know, my views have kind of run counter to analysts over the years with Granger's margin, in that I think them bringing down their margins is a healthy thing. And I've, I felt that when uh, DG McPherson originally came in and he used his honeymoon period to do something really gutsy. Which was to slash prices pretty aggressively. He took a lot of heat for that. But he was smart in two ways. One was that was the only time he could really do that, I think, was in that first year of his first year in office. And then the second thing is that Granger just got overpriced. I mean, one of the things that bothers me about um, distributors and distributor analysts is there's this sense that the higher the margin, the better, no matter what. And that is just absolutely not. My view at all, uh, and someone Mark just wrote in it's largely due to PPE though, right? The margin degradation, and yes, I think that that they they specifically say that in their earnings release that this is because of the growth of, of PPE, uh, you know, personal protective equipment, and I get that. But even with that, I don't think it's bad for their margins to come down some. I mean, the, you've got to be competitive. This notion that you can just continue to increase margins forever in a distribution company. Uh, that That is one philosophy of profitability. Meanwhile, Jeff Bezos over at Amazon is saying, our profitability is not our customer's problem. We're going to be competitive first, and we'll figure out how to make money later. And that sort of put in the customer first view. And I understand, look, you screw that up, and you're going to go out of business because you're running out of money. Can't do that either, right? So you want to defi- definitely claim your value. That's different than saying margins should go up forever, which is frankly sort of the attitude that I see a lot of distribution executives have. Do you run into this, Jonathan? Am I off base here? Well, at some point, elasticity k- kicks in, right?
1: Elasticity is not the same at all points along the curve. If you have, if you have a demand curve, it's not, it's not elastic, similarly elastic at all points along the curve. So at some point you're going to hit a, hit a part right. of the curve where it becomes very elastic. But I think also to your, your points that you brought up previously in the importance of. If you are going to get margin increases, can you do it on the supplier side as opposed to the customer side? Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, every time you talk to it, well, that's, no, I don't want to make an extreme statement. Most of the time when you talk to distributors about increasing profitability, they translate, they hear that is synonymous with raising prices to customers. And then you start asking them, well, how many people in your organization come buy and cut POs and, it's like dozens or hundreds, and all these people buying inefficiently, spot buying, they don't even know how much they're buying from every supplier, because they've got some you know, generic skew that they put all this source stuff under. And so you've got all kinds of suppliers that you're buying a lot of money from, you don't know, it. you're not centralizing it, there's no rebate or pricing negotiations. Why not clean that stuff up first before trying to ask for more money out of customers, or at least do it simultaneously?
1: Absolutely. And, and I think back to Mark's point, um, this comment about the PPE. It's also PPE and Janssen. We're going to see a, a, a right. trend here. Um, maybe some of our, our listeners on the show and viewers on the show today who have uh, operating roles are experiencing the same thing. You, you're, you're, you're selling more PPE, you're selling more Janssen. Historically, those used to be higher and better margins, um, but certainly with the PPE, there's, there's been almost a glut of, of supply and the that's pushed the the prices down on on PPE. So that that product mix is definitely affecting affecting Granger. And it's not just PP, it's also Jansen.
0: Yeah, right. And sales are pretty strong. I mean, they you know, they they said US segment sales were up three 3.1% uh versus the overall US MRO market declining at five to six percent. So that's like an eight or nine percent outgrowth versus competitors. Uh, and this was driven largely by higher volume of pandemic-related products, uh, partially offset by year-over-year decreases in non-product, non-pandemic product sales. So there was a product mix change that 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 changed margin, and they took share, uh, but the stock price fell because investors were expecting even better performance. Apparently, although they you know they beat earnings and sales, or they they I think they met one and beat the other. So I think the the stock price retraction was due to the gross margin performance. I think that's ridiculous. I mean, it's obviously a temporary thing. It's driven by product mix. What are they supposed to do? Not sell the PPE during the pandemic? And so I, I think it's a buying opportunity for rangers. I mean, you know, like I'm qualified to get stock advice, but – uh, don't listen to me. Don't, I'll tell you right now. Don't listen to me on stock advice. But I, I do think that that you know that's an overreaction. That's a pretty big decline based on a on a one quarter gross margin decrease that's easily explained and probably healthy in the long run anyway. That's my point of view. So let's talk about
1: Granger and Zorro in their mix. Okay. Um, so so in their report, they've talked about Granger is focusing on wallet share. Mm-hmm. And Zorro is focusing on more on market share, and they describe their their addressable U.S. market. By the way, that's the part right. that they can reach with products, brands, channels. They describe that as about 120 billion dollar addressable market share. Right. What's your understanding of Zorro's role in the strategy going forward?
0: I think it's high tech, low effort versus high touch. You know, so I noticed in their in their in their earnings call. They said that over 60% of our U.S. revenue is generated from customers with one or more embedded solution. So that's it's like
1: extor- that's extraordinary.
0: Yeah, it is extraordinary. It's like Keep Stock, right? And 75% of the sales they said in August are coming in through electronic channels. Of course, they include EDI in that at Granger. Not everybody does, but you know, the, it's kind of a compelling combination. Uh, it's very, very easy to criticize Granger. Uh, because of the growth of Amazon business. And I think on the earnings calls over the years, they've, and and in their public statements, they've made efforts to differentiate or or claim differentiation with Amazon business. But a couple thoughts. First of all, if you've got 60% of your sales coming from embedded solutions, you've got some high barriers to exit the relationship for almost two thirds of your sales. The second thing is, and I absolutely love this. There's a I don't remember his name, but on LinkedIn, I follow somebody and he's like a a manager for keep stock operations somewhere at Granger, And he keeps posting pictures of Granger vending machines at Amazon distribution centers. So Uh, there's a little irony. Yeah, but he does it. He's not doing it to slam Amazon. At least if he does, he's not explicit about it and it doesn't come across that way. But, you know, his point, I think, or the point maybe is that, even Amazon sees a need for Granger's type of MRO capabilities. And the first time I saw it, I was really surprised. It, it, it just, it really caught me off guard to see all these you know keep stock vending machines in an Amazon distribution center, but it really makes the point that they have a differentiated value proposition. Um, Zorro, they said that they've added one and a half million SKUs this year, pushing its assortment to roughly five million products. And I and and I know Zorro is working on a third party marketplace. All I would say, and I don't know why it's not going faster. At least my impression is that that's not growing very fast. They just have a you know sort of a generic landing page for it. And, I'm, and I don't know if that's they're trying to get the capabilities ready in IT or if there's. Uh, debate about it at grant. I have no idea, but I would say they need to move faster because they need a, they need a true third party party marketplaces as good and impressive as 5 million SKUs is it doesn't compare uh, to true marketplaces.
1: Point taken. Another part of what they um, are looking towards in the future is really improving the customer experience from a digital standpoint. Yeah. Right. And they're talking about making the on site search better, improving. Product data. So I think this is a, a note to listeners of, you know, we need we need to look at where Granger is going with digital because um, m- most of the rest of us are following rather than than leading Granger in that. So they're improving on-site search and right. visualization capabilities. In fact, they've contributed. They've they've credited marketing with contributing to their U.S. market share gain over the last four years, um, and. That's both on the on the advertising side uh but also um in in paid search, so right. that's where that's where Granger's doubling down
0: yeah, and they have you know they've got uh, they 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 may not be the only distributor that has item recognition on their app, but they're certainly uh one of the only ones so you can you can open the Granger app and point it at a product and it'll match it up now I don't know how well it works uh but you know, we're used to seeing item recognition coming from the big players, the big tech-based players, you know, plus some big retailers like Home Depot have it. But it's impressive to see Granger put that in place. I, I think, to some degree, it only works as well as the number of products that you have that can, you, you can match to. So they need to continue to double down on, on expanding the assortment. But overall, I thought it was a pretty impressive report from Granger.
1: Yeah, I, I would think that the, that the match rate on the item recognition – to be workable for somebody is going to have to be above eighty-five or ninety percent. Doesn't have to be ninety-nine percent. Yeah, but I think if if you're in the if you're above the eighty-five percent match rate, people will use it and with the understanding that you know one out of five or one out of six or one out of seven times it's not going to match.
0: Yeah, that's probably fair. Now they did say the endless assortment model, which includes Zorro uh, and I think it's pronounced Monada Row. Uh, continues to deliver with 20% growth in the third quarter. So uh, that's impressive, right? My only caution there is my guess is there is some cannibalization there with some of that revenue coming out of uh, the historical or the traditional platform. Um, Okay, I think that's it. Anything else you want to say about Granger before we move on? No, I think that's good. Okay, great. All right, so let's talk next about, uh, I think we've got MSC teed up next, and we do. Okay, so MSC did uh, a little over three quarters of a billion dollars in the third quarter. They did $748 That was down 11% over 2019. Uh, So substantially down versus Granger's performance. Operating margins were down 0.3%. Gross margins were essentially flat, down a little bit. What was your first takeaway when you saw these numbers, Jonathan? I,
1: I think their end markets are going to be a little weaker than at least part of what Granger's selling into. I agree. So, um, so I think that's, that's a really big piece. Um, but, but they like Granger have seen the product mix uh, bring margins down uh, the PPE and Jansan Um so
0: I think those are two of the the big contributing factors. So what really stands out for me about MSC is that you know here you have a you know so three billion dollar company roughly right um, three billion ish probably a little bigger and their market cap is three point eight billion. Right. Grangers is nineteen billion and Fastenal is twenty something billion. Twenty five. 25, right. So you've got, I mean, the PE or the, yeah, the, the PE ratio on these companies is wildly different. Um, and, and the other interesting factor is MSC says that 60% of their orders come through electronic channels versus Granger's 75%, even though MSC is more of a distribution center-based business. So I, I don't, something, something doesn't add up here, and I'm, I'm not sure what it is. Well, if you think
1: about their end customers, at least a big part of their customer base, which is machine shops it can't be the case that those machine shops are doing punch out and um, EDI,
0: right? Mm-hmm. That's true.
1: So, I mean, I'm sorry, yeah, so so, um, so I think a lot of that from those smaller end customers is gonna be coming through the, the website. But then as, as you look towards the larger customers, you're gonna be seeing that coming from the EDI and, and punch out any procurement. And a lot
0: of phone calls uh, apparently,
1: <laughs> and a lot of phone calls, right? Because it's it's hard to see how, given the the nature of their mix, they get a sixty percent number going through e commerce. That just doesn't make sense.
0: Um, you think it'd be higher? You mean, or
1: I, I would think it would be lower. You and, do. You know, okay. we've we've done work in the gas and welding space, yeah, which has got some overlap with this, and the end customers in that space are just not very digitally oriented. Di- digital oriented, so. Um, that's why it's hard to, to understand how you get to that 60% number. I think a lot of it's got to be coming from larger customers that have e-procurement, you know, enterprise accounts.
0: Yeah, I think the other variable here is that MSC has more complex products on average than Granger. You know, MSC is a lot of machine tool accessories, cutting tools, et cetera. And it's more likely that customers are going to need some help walking through those choices. And so they're going to be more likely to make phone calls. And I got to tell you, you know how I feel. I think this whole notion of what percentage of my business is coming through digital channels can really go too far. If you focus on that too much, you can wind up forcing customers to place orders in ways that they don't want to, which means forcing them to go to competitors. And so you want to have fantastic digital, digital capabilities. You should, you should have a healthy chunk coming through your digital channels. But If that becomes your goal, that's not a customer-focused goal. That's an analyst-focused goal. You're trying to please the analysts. And you can overdo it, and it might well be that having stellar phone service is still highly valuable, and I think it is.
1: Well, e- even, if the, even if the shopping is done digitally, the order is placed by phone, right? right. So you're, the, the website is getting a, a significant assist in the, in the total credit of the sale. It's, the order is just not being placed through a, a digital channel.
0: Yeah, fair enough. True. Okay. And so they announced their uh, mission critical of, uh, or not, I don't know if they announced it. They, they, they no, they, they said for the past them. several years, yep. they've been repositioned in the company from a spot by supplier to a mission critical partner on the plant floor. So tell us what that means, Jonathan.
1: Well, I think we've spoken about this in previous episodes about the fact that a lot of distributors have, services or value-added services that touch procurement or inbound logistics and that's great and that's where you're getting you know all the vmi um perhaps vending th- those of integrated supply but i think to the extent that they are affecting the core operation of the business that's a very very strong move and um will make them very sticky with their customers um, they talk about the shop floor i mean or the plant floor that's that's where they want to be Right. Um, so I think that is a stronger move. I think there's there's fewer distributors that are creating value in the core operation of the business, and there are more that are doing it on the inbound logistics and procurement side of things.
0: Right. Uh, I agree. I think you're – we know distributors, uh, a couple of them are on this call, <laughs> Um, who are making a great effort to develop and implement services, and they're hiring someone to head up their services and manage it like a P&L. Kudos to those distributors. That's exactly the right thing to do, in our opinion. And MSC is doing the same thing, right? And they're going, look, we're, we want, we don't just want to be important to the receiving doc. We want to be important on the shop floor where the action is, where the, val- where the true value is added, where the company is taking inbound materials and transforming it into something of value of greater value and earning its margin. Because we're helping that company earn its value added, earn its margin, then we become more essential to the company and it's harder for them to exit. So I think the real issue is just execution risk. I mean, you know, did they choose the right initiative? Sure, but now you have to execute well. Um, and they say that they've got some priorities, build on a talented team of metalworking specialists, leverage exclusive MSC, Milmax technology, increase investments in vending VMI and in plant solutions programs, elevate websites and other digital tools and scale presence in counter-cyclical businesses. I'm reading this from an article that was in industrial distribution uh, that came out, I think earlier this week uh, or a couple of days ago. That's very, very good. It's very well done. Uh, I think Mike Hockett wrote it, but I would definitely uh, read this article. And then on the on the sales and services supply chain side, they want to optimize their DC network. It sounds like, you know, some consolidation perhaps or some expansion, renegotiate supplier contracts, redesign talent acquisition search, reduce long-term freight contracts, and voluntarily, voluntary early retirement program, you know, probably to manage some costs uh, given what's going on with uh, the economy. Uh, I, I mean, if they execute that well, oh, and they also want to, um, diversify customers in end markets. So that's a lot of stuff they're focusing on, but it's all focused around a single type of, or, or a couple of initiatives. What do you think of that list?
1: I think, I think MSC is known as being a strategically thoughtful business. And I think these components of their go forward plan are reflective of that strategic thoughtfulness.
0: Right. And the question becomes, can they execute it well? Right. That's right. Okay. So uh no surprises here. I mean, it feels to me that MSC has an opportunity to opportunity to build a lot of market cap. Mm-hmm. It just on a PE basis, they just seem undervalued. And that that may not undervalued compared to their peers. That doesn't mean that they haven't earned this valuation because analysts are very thoughtful. And I, you know, I've met with a lot of analysts in my career. They have piercing insights into these companies. So they're not making lighthearted decisions about what to the value of them at. Um, I, I, I just think there's an opportunity for uh, MSC if they, if these are the right initiatives and they execute them well, which is tough for any company, I'm not singling them out. Um, they, there's, there's some upside here.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, I think you, we have to look at the, the profitability of MSC versus Granger. So the the percentage profitability of MSC is actually higher than the percentage profitability of Granger. Right. Yet the, yet yet Granger's got a higher PE. Um, by contrast, and and we're going to look at Fastenal next. Uh, Fastenal is quite a bit more profitable than than any of the four companies that we're looking at, and it seems like they are rewarded in their in their PE and in their in their and their, and their price, so.
0: All right. Yep. All right, so speaking of FAST, which is their ticker symbol, let's look at FAST and all. So the third quarter sales were 1.4 billion, up two and a half percent versus 2019. Operating margins were up 1.1%. Gross margins were down uh, 90 basis points. And so all things considered, given the product mix as we've talked about earlier, uh, that seems like pretty decent performance. And their market cap is a hair over $25 billion. Any comments on that before I start talking about their commentary?
1: Well, it's, it's just an astounding market cap.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, you just don't, you know, a lot of distributors are valued at a third to 40% of top line revenue or a much lower P.E., and right. so the, they, they are awarded part of it is that they have been very consistent in their growth. So if we look at um, sort of a pattern of companies that have, have gotten more profitable during the downturn, the pattern looks like perhaps they meet their top line goals or not, but they definitely reduce SGNA. and um, mm-hmm. and some of them are actually showing higher profitability. Fastenal actually is meeting their top line goals, and um, even with um, some some decrease in the gross margin, uh, they're showing they're beating their their earnings estimates and they're beating their profitability estimates. So they are just a formidable player who is just the ever is it the Energizer? They just I mean they just keep on running. They just keep Energizer,
0: Energizer Bunny,
1: Energizer Bunny every quarter. You know it's all things are up and to the right, uh, even in the downturn.
0: Yeah, uh, for you, I tell you, you read this earnings transcript and it's not like any other in distribution. <clears throat> I mean, it reminds me of the of when Herb Kelleher was out Southwest, Air, Southwest Airlines and mm-hmm. it was a bit of irreverence, but this obsession, not only with customers, but with employees. And so Dan Florence, who's the CEO there, these are his opening comments and I'm, I'm Picking, you know from a few paragraphs one of the jovial aspects of my role here at fast and all is in the fall of each year i send a letter to all of our 25-year employees bill jazowski uh he's our leader in western in the western united states in august he celebrated 25 years i remember the first time i met bill i was traveling in southern minnesota he was working at our albert lieb minnesota branch my first impression of meeting bill was i didn't realize we hired 16 year olds Cause I guess he looked young, but so the, so he has this whole thing about you know all these 25 year employees. He names a bunch of them by name and then he closes the call. Um, so the very, the very last thing he says on the call uh, is uh, let's see here. Oh yeah, here it is. And in closing on October 28th, my wife and I will celebrate 25 years. And Jen, thanks. If you're listening, have a good day, everybody. Take care. So he opens up with, you know, celebrating his 25 year employees and he ends with a call out to his wife, to whom he's been married for 25 years. So he bookended that nicely, maybe coincidentally, but very nicely. And then the whole call is just so different. It's all about this customer obsession about, you know, field employees taking them to task for added costs uh, because they're all running their own P&L. They don't like seeing headquarters costs go up. So he's explaining how they've, you know, invested in all these mobility products, I mean, it sounds like they haven't laid anybody off. They have a little, I think 1% of the people still furloughed, if I'm thinking of the right company here. Um, so, uh, and they and they have a detailed report on their COVID statistics. Um, and, you know, he's pretty unapologetic. He had at one point talked about how someone had pointed out to him. Um, so Holden, I think is their CFO, gave me a couple of analyst reports that came out earlier this morning, and there I saw where we have – this is funny. He apparently didn't know this already. There I saw we have $30 million of slow-moving PPE inventory. I mean, which CEO is going to admit that he learned something from an analyst report that he didn't know? I mean, it's just a, it's a, a, a refreshing – It's humility. a return on it's
1: – it's an ROC, return on culture. And so a yeah. lot of companies will brag about their culture, and a lot of times it's kind of hokey. Um, this is real. This is real, and, yeah. and, and, and they're living
0: it. Right? And he says, I think there are folks in our organization that are looking at our PPE inventory and saying, geez, we have a bunch, uh, and they're scared about it. Nervous about it is probably a better word. But based on our th- sales in Q3, we do have months of supplies. Frankly, in today's chaotic world, I consider that an asset, not a problem. And it will support us as we move through this, and I'm happy we have it. So if you need a three-ply mask, give us a call. <laughs> right. So you know, I mean, they're always selling, right? They have the sales-focused culture, and you know. So the comment, then I'll I'll shut up in a minute, and let you talk, Jonathan. But I, I just want to, you know, on the slide for those of you on the podcast, we have a statement uh, out of their earnings call that says we protected our talent the way we did through what certainly initially looked like a pretty nasty downturn, specifically so that we'd be able to move quickly when conditions allowed, and with demand getting gradually better and with our customers increasingly re-engaging in conversations about growth drivers. In many respects, that moment has come. So you think about, okay, as a distributor, you provide inventory, and you provide service, which comes through people. Here's a company that managed to negotiate their way through the Great Recession. I'm sure there's some luck involved based on end markets, et cetera. But they managed to really protect their revenues uh, through the recession. And look what happens. Now they've got the inventory, they've got the people where they could potentially rebound significantly coming out. At least that's, that's my view based on reading tea leaves. Well, and here's here's where the
1: V-shaped rebound for them has actually manifested. They look, as everybody knows, at what they're doing with vending machines and they look on a business day basis and they were at 75 a day. New vending machine installs in Q one. They dropped to 54 during Q two, and then they're right. up to 73 again in Q three. Right. So that's evidence that they they have experienced that V shaped recovery. Um and so they're signing up, do the math, they're signing up 25,000 uh, new vending machines every year. And all of that just gets stickier and stickier and stickier in in their end customer base.
0: Yeah, they're apparently making progress with governmental entities. Um, and we do have someone who's asking about their private label sales. And I don't know. I don't remember seeing that referred to in their materials, Jonathan. Did I miss that? Did you see that?
1: I, did, I didn't see that either. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm curious, Scott, if you have anything to share on uh, on that, or or even what's behind the question.
0: Um, yeah. So I don't. I don't see. I, I mean, look. You know, the, the this company's got their act together. Uh, the I, I think the big question about Fastenal to me is how long uh, – and, and maybe the answer is forever – how long does this local model of large stocks of fasteners um, really serve the market? And fasteners are very, very hard to sell online, and people have tried different approaches. And I know they're much more than fasteners, but it is in their name, right? Um but right. they've tried various approaches to selling fasteners. Where I remember there was one app. I don't even know if it's around anymore. But you could, you know, put a fastener like a screw down, and you put a coin next to it of some kind, um, and then the software would identify the the specifications of the fastener. And uh, I don't think that ever worked. Right? It's just really hard because it's not just the thread count and the shape of the fastener. It's also the material that it's made of that is an important part of its specifications. And I, I just think it's a, it's a, a problem uh, to sell a lot of the stuff that Fastenal sells any other way than through a local counter. And I also think there's an advantage if you're in the fastener business in that you can store an enormous amount of assortment uh, and some pretty good depth for the relatively low cost per location, which is why they and, – and, and those stores can be small. So they have like thousands of small stores um, – and they still seem to be yielding value, and at the same time, they're matching it with good e-commerce performance and on-site performance and, and a great culture. So, I mean, they're not, you know, they make mistakes like any other company does. I'm not calling them perfect, uh, and maybe all that stuff is already priced into their shares. I don't really know. Uh, but it was, it was impressive to read and, and fun to read their earnings call compared to a lot of other earnings calls.
1: Yeah. I think to your point, they have been a little slower to adopt digital. Um, I know their sort of ramp in digital was starting a few years ago, as opposed to 10 or 15 years ago. If you look at Granger, it, it dates back to the time when you were there, right? Uh, MSC has been on this path strongly for about 10 years. So I think to your point, they it is a it is a slightly different business model that lends itself less to the digital side of things. But the other, the other opportunity for Fastenal is if you think about the fastener sector, um, quick, name three fasteners suppliers, big name suppliers. You're hard uh, pressed to do that, right? And you, in, in other sectors, you have I um, significant. I
0: could do it. You could do it? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. So give, give, me, give me two. Fasteners Inc. and Fastenal. Okay. But no, but no,
1: Fastenal is, I'm talking about, I'm talking about manufacturers. Oh, manufacturers. I'm sorry. Yes. Right. So it's, it's yeah. not like electrical. Uh, I, I, where have, I have got to work it. at it. Right. You have to work at it. Right. It's, it's not like electrical where you've got eaten. And, well, the brand know, doesn't matter. The brand, the brand doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. But right. I think that's a place, it's actually an opportunity for Fastenal to add value. And I think to Scott's point, what he mentioned was that, uh, this is one of our listeners today, that they've historically been approaching 50% of their revenue through private label. Yeah. Right. Um, And so, you know, companies that execute private label well
0: can see very high margins. Right. Well, and protect their revenues because you can't come. You can't cross out. That's right. Um, So and by the way, I had. So I don't know. This is probably dumb. By definition, I'm saying it. So it's probably dumb. But uh, I was reading (laughs) Granger was talking about their vibrant employee culture, which is great. I'm not criticizing that. But when I then, after that, I was reading the fastball notes, and I thought, well, they've got a vibram employee culture. It's all about boots on job sites and in factories you know and and so it's great to be vibrant. I think that's a good thing I'm not making fun of Granger, but you know, I came from Whitecap, and we had a vibram culture as well where it was all about wearing boots and being on the job with customers I mean there's something interesting when you go out to a job site and you can barely tell the employees in your company from the customers. When when the employees and the customers look the same, it's almost like there's this melding of intent and aspiration and culture and values. Mm-hmm. And I, I see that. I'm not familiar enough with Fastenal to know for sure whether or not they have that, but it seems like they do. And we had it at Whitecap. Mm-hmm. It was funny, we, you know. Whitecap had a big presence at the World of Concrete, and several years ago, uh, just to just because I was curious, I started walking through our competitors' uh, displays, and I walked to the All display, and man, it was so funny because you know we're we were sort of indirect competitor to Fastenal, not not from my perspective, not significant, but man, they were like, "Don't you touch anything, buddy? We see you. We got our eyes on you." It was funny because it was like. It was like you know they were they're very proud of their brand and they and they viewed me as an interloper because i was all geared up in white cap stuff and i like that i was smiling at these guys i'm like man you guys are like me 20 years ago you know sort of uh sort of this is our team you know we're gonna we're, we're gonna defend against all interlopers it was it was it made me smile and i think that that vibram culture uh brings that out where there's a oh, it's a will to win and mm-hmm. And it's hard to build that. Whitecap has it. Fast Mall has it. Um, and there are other kinds of cultures that are very, very successful. I'm not saying you can't do it in other ways. Uh, but I do like, personally, I fit better in a vibrant culture than a vibrant culture. So, all right. Shall we move on? Let's move on. Okay. So last one we're going to talk about. We're going to do this briefly. And then I'm going to ask. and we're going to argue. But um, so Motion Industries is embedded within uh, GPC, Genuine Parts Company. And uh, they said their industrial sales were $1.4 billion in the quarter, an 18.6% decrease from a year ago. Um, However, excluding the EIS divestiture because they sold EIS off, industrial sales were down approximately 9%, which is a significant improvement from the second quarter. Um, and so I think, you know, based on what they do, right, they sell a lot of power transmission products and they sell to factory floors. Uh, they probably performed just fine. They didn't have information in there about how they performed versus their peers. So it was really hard to tell. Uh, our segment profit of $126 million was down 8%. So they, you know, they got a little leverage and cost savings. Um, and uh, the profit margin was up 80 basis points to 8.9%. So uh, they look like another industrial distributor doing a decent job managing through the crisis, not stellar, not bad. Uh, The most interesting thing about this comparison or or where GPC fits in is, you know, they have a market cap of 13 and a half billion, even though they're a much larger company than Fastenal, which has a market cap of 25 billion. And so that's, Based on you know investor confidence and in future results, basically is a lot higher for Fastenal. But you know that's that's Fasenol that performs everybody, so that's not a shot at GPC. But um, you know I, we just don't have as much insight into Motion. Do you have any comments before we move on, Jonathan?
1: Well, I, I think again this fits into that pattern of our our revenues down, um, our margins are down, but our profitability is up. So one of the things you hear from CEOs. Private and public is, yeah, during the downturn, we let go of some people we probably should have let go of anyhow. I mean, mm-hmm. I've heard that from any number of, of profit and loss holders. So, so this pattern of revenue down but profit up is based on cost cutting. But there, there are other sort of you know perks of COVID, if you will. Or uh, one is just, just simple things like you're not paying as much to sales reps for um, t and right? Because they're not going to customer sites as much. So there's there's sure. all kinds of things that happen in, in sort of SG&A engineering in COVID uh, that allow companies to have lower revenue and higher profit. Qu- the question is whether they're gaining true efficiencies in the process, right? Are you just cutting people or are you actually getting more efficient with a smaller number of people? I mean, so as opposed to, are you just working a smaller number of people, a longer number of hours?
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I think that just generally speaking, whenever you go through a crisis, it gets a lot easier to make hard decisions because you don't have any choice. Right. And that's the human condition. None of us likes as managers, you know, everyone loves to hire. Nobody loves to fire. And if you do love to fire, you shouldn't be a manager because it's not a place for status. Um, having said that, I think that generally speaking, corporations have a bad tendency to hire people they don't really need. And I've been guilty of that myself. I think it's important that you constantly add up all the open approved positions and figure out if you hired them all tomorrow and you suddenly had that payroll, what would happen to your P and L? Because positions get approved one at a time. And pretty soon you've got 30 or 300 open jobs that people are actively recruiting for. And if you suddenly filled them all, what would happen to your PL? And right. I've seen people do that analysis. It's pretty devastating. I mean, right. you you have a you actually have some risk out there that you're not identifying that's in your open positions because that would bring on an incredible amount of cost burden to the organization. And so they all got to prove to the legitimate process. Everybody thinks they need these, they need these positions, but most companies are not summing up all those open positions, open recs and figuring out what the impact would be if they hired if they hired everyone. And so I think it's something that gets done on a case by case basis, but it has an aggregate impact that's underestimated in many companies. And a crisis like this, you know, and I, I know it's, it's a cliche, but never waste a good crisis. I think this is an opportunity to right size. So here's an important question for you. You're saying if I'm a
1: sadist, I shouldn't be a manager, but could I, could I be an individual contributor? Oh, of course. <laughs>
0: okay, good. Yeah, because you need someone to do a statistical analysis. Statistical, very nice. Okay, very nice. Um, and so, and and with that, everybody hangs
1: up from this call. That's right. So um, so before we move into the point counterpoint uh, part of this discussion, I wanted to mention to our our viewers and listeners, we're going to be tracking public distributors in a in a more systematic and thoughtful way, and we'll be producing a part on our site that has essentially an index of probably a couple of hundred of public distributors in the US. So just a, just a note to, to self, um, start looking for more information on this and we'll be tracking in a more systematic way.
0: Cool. Looking forward to that. Thanks for leading up that effort. Okay. So I don't have the question on the screen, but I do have our valuable contact information in case any of you wants to call or write us or send us hate mail based on my bad jokes. But here's the question, Jonathan, if you were the CEO of a distribution company, would you bring everybody back into the office and branches now?
1: As a consultant, my immediate out on the question is, it depends. Uh, <laughs> well, it there's this two-by-two matrix. That's right. Um, and it depends in part on where I am in this country. Um, we're sitting in Colorado now. We're seeing COVID like we haven't seen in the entire time. You know, this is this is like two or three times the highest peak that we had. So I think it depends on, on where I am um, in any event, we would be using significant caution to bring certain employees back into the office. But in certain locales, I would be, um, it would be caution squared in terms of how we're handling things.
0: How about you, Ian? I would bring everybody back in most circumstances. And, why? And, well, well, first of all, and this is anecdotal information, so I'd probably do some more analysis first. But from talking to some CEOs, including some CEOs of multi-billion-dollar distribution companies and some others who have brought everybody back, or just about everybody. No one's got a black-and-white rule where you have to come back no matter what. Everybody makes accommodations for people who are at high risk or they, have, they live with someone who's high risk. So, look, you, you can't be a jerk about it. You need to be flexible to some degree. And if people are really uncomfortable, I would accommodate them for a long time. Let me say that. But generally speaking, I would bring everybody back. And the reason is that statistically, based on what I've seen, people are no more at risk at work than they are anywhere else, assuming they wear a mask. I have zero interest in debating masks. I mean, we've known that viruses are spread through airborne particles for hundreds of years. And if you don't want to wear a mask, then why don't you tell that to your doctor next time you have surgery, right? I mean, I have no interest in debating it. I would make mask usage 100% mandatory. I would test everybody's temperature as they came in. But I would bring everybody back. And and the reason is, our customers are back. I don't see how it's right, or fair or how we can provide great service to customers if we're not where we should be. Now, is it true that your accounts receivable people can work from home better than your customer service people can? Yes, that's fine. Again, I wouldn't give it make it a black and white scenario. But if you're in customer service, or you're in sales, or you work the counter, you know, or you work the warehouse, or you're a delivery driver, a lot of those people have already been back, and they never left, right? They've had to work. And meanwhile, the people with the cushiest jobs, sorry, I guess that's an old field employee point of view, have been safe working from home. Well, I think everybody's safe, or just as safe at work as they are from home, if everybody wears a mask wear a mask, protect yourself, protect others and everybody comes back to work. This whole economy wouldn't have had to go through this shutdown if everybody wore a mask. Why this is a political thing, I don't get. Just wear a freaking mask and let's go back to work. And that's that's my point of view. And and you know I'm an iconoclast when it comes to things like like politics. I'm not trying to make a political statement. Wearing a mask shouldn't be a political statement. It's a scientific statement. Uh, and that's my point of view. And I bring people wear a mask, come back to work, let's help customers, let's get back to work. That's my point of view.
1: Okay, so you're saying particularly for the customer-facing side of things, there's no substitute for having people on the job?
0: Yeah, look, I mean, customer service operations, you have to put the resources where the demand is. When I was running branches at Granger a million years ago, we had walkie-talkies, and we would constantly move labor from – picking will calls to helping customers at the counter to pick packing and shipping in the shipping department. And we use the radios to do it. Right. And everybody had one. We charge them up every night. And we were, you know, I used to say communication is lubrication that runs the branch machine. That was like a mantra that I had. And I remember it all these years later. And the same is true of a distribution center. Same is true of a call center. you got to communicate. You should be obsessive about customers, obsessive about customer wait time. I don't see how you execute that well uh, in when everybody's working from home. And I don't believe that you can have everybody. I don't don't think it's fair for the customer service people to be working from home and nobody else is. Well,
1: as, um, Olson Johnson in blazing saddles said to Gabby Johnson, now who can argue with
0: that? Oh, somebody will for sure. Uh, somebody will for sure. And I get it, but I mean, I, I, you know, how I feel where, Every business, including distributors, lose the sight of what really matters in your company is the experience that the customers get when they interact with you. That's what defines your brand. It's not your advertising campaign. It's not your SEO. It's what happens when they contact you. And most distributors don't measure that. They don't study it. They're not a customer of them of them of themselves. Right. I mean, if, you, if you're if you on this call, when's the last time you bought from your own company anonymously? Not gave an order for someone at the office to fulfill for you. When's the last time you went onto your website and placed an order? When's the last time you walked into one of your branches unannounced, stood at the counter, observed, and placed an order? When's the last time you picked up the phone, called your company, and figured out what it was like to buy? I think in many cases that service has deteriorated, but distributors don't know because they're not engaged. And, and that was already a problem pre-COVID. Now it's a bigger problem now bring put masks on come back to work take care of the customer i don't think you're at more risk than staying at home i think i've made my point now i will shut up and let you speak again sorry
1: like i said now who can argue with that i i I hear what you're saying i i don't i don't mean to be facetious i hear what you're saying um and we do have to get back to work and as one of our favorite uh listeners says amen rev
0: amen 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 yes (laughs) well thank you joe i appreciate it but uh, you know, the, this is just a—it's a, a core value to me, and and we can't shut down the economy anymore. And let, let's get people back to work. Uh, but let's let let's do. Let's not be dumb about it. Out of some political point of view, it's not a—it's not a—it's not a collective uh, plot that happened to enroll leaders from all of our strategic rivals and all of our allies simultaneously to wear masks. It's just a fact. Wear a freaking mask. Come back to work. Um, and let's take care of customers, and let's let's focus on the business objectives, and quit arguing with each other about science that's been settled for hundreds of years. Terrific! What do we have to look forward to here, Ian? Um, so, uh, just so for the audience, uh, Jonathan just texted me, "Enough, Ian." <laughs> Fair enough, Jonathan. You you you're I, I get worked up, uh, so sorry if I overdid it. Uh, so anyway, so what did you ask me? What are we looking forward to next? Yeah. So we have John Tessera, who's the CEO of Johnstone Supply, coming on the on the show soon, and he's going to talk about. So this is an interesting question: um, Can you build a culture virtually? And so John strongly feels the answer is yes, and I do too. Right, and and I think you are going there's you're going to be a lot more virtual from now on, no matter what, because it just makes more sense for some people to have that flexibility at least sometimes. Um, and John feels strongly that you can build a culture vir- virtually and he's got some very interesting points of view. Um, and so we're looking forward to hearing from him and and getting his explanation on that. And then uh, what else is coming up, Jonathan? Throwing We've also got
1: a session coming up soon on building customer
0: incentive and loyalty programs. Ah, yes. Right. So Lincoln Smith from HMI is going to come on and talk mm-hmm. about uh, how you build loyalty programs with customers. I think that'll be uh, that'll be very interesting as well. And and about NAW, our next webcast with
1: NAW is on November 17th at 2 Eastern, 11 Pacific. Um, It'll be the fifth in the series of seven on on how technology will transform wholesale distribution.
0: Yeah, and this one is on uh, marketplaces and becoming a digital distributor. So you don't want to miss that. I think we have some interesting insights uh, and we're pulling together some of the research that we've already done. And then, of course, Wholesale Change will be back next week at this time. So 12 Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific. Anything else, Jonathan, are we done? We're done. All right. Everyone, thanks for attending. Thank you for listening to my rant. And, uh, Jonathan, thanks for tamping me down a little bit. I appreciate it. Uh, I need a little little regulation sometimes instead of all this caffeine. Hope you have a wonderful uh, week between now and then. uh, And good business, good sales, and take care of your customers. Bye now.